Welcome to the Rebel at Large Adventure Podcast. I'm Drifter. And I'm Gypsy. Talking about ghost towns, graveyards, outlaws, heroes, and ladies of the night. Howdy folks, thanks again for joining us. This episode we are going to do something a little different for the month of October. We're not going to tell you about just one person. Nope. We're going to tell you about several folks and their haunted final resting places. These places are going to be around Utah because, well, that's where our home base is for us right now. <laughs> but from here on out, while we're on the road, we'll be looking for more haunted headstones and other places. So if you know of any of them, please let us know. We don't need much of an excuse to get out on the road. No, we do not. Uh, the first place we're taking you to is the Pleasant Green Cemetery in the township of Magna, Utah. It is located at 9200 West, 3500 South. The cemetery was founded in 1883 by a Mormon bishop by the name of Lehi Nephi Hardman. He had all the perfect names. <laughs> all the church names. Yes. All in one. <laughs> uh, the LDS Church owned the cemetery from 1883 to 1983 until the church formed a nonprofit to take care of it. The church then turned the ownership of the cemetery to the Magna Metro Township in May 2020. Just recently, huh? Yep. Uh, the cemetery has prided itself on maintaining a natural state, meaning all of the plants found in the cemetery are native to the area. There are no sprinklers there, so the cemetery almost looks to be abandoned, but it's not. They are actually still accepting new burials. Uh, the cemetery overlooks the township of Magna, and when we went there during the night, it was really beautiful because you could see the whole town lit up. You're up kind of high, so you can um, overlook everything. Yeah. It's neat to see all the lights. Pretty cool. So what makes this place so scary? I'm not even sure. <laughs> but some people report hearing voices or laughter while hanging out out there. Uh, some visitors have also said that they feel they are being watched. But the reason we went there was to see the glowing headstones. <laughs> so we went there earlier this summer. It was around 9 o'clock at night, right when the sun was starting to set. We wanted to get there with enough light to see the cemetery and get a feel for it, but also see if we can find some headstones a-glowing. Yep. So as you drive into the cemetery, you'll see a giant white cross. It's straight ahead. Um, if you miss it, you really shouldn't be out driving. It's that big of a cross. <laughs> Definitely noticeable. <laughs> so we also noticed a lot of family plots. Some of them look to be pretty well maintained, while others look like no one's been around to visit in the past 100 years or so. Yeah, really overgrown. Um, we couldn't find anything saying what headstones in the cemetery glow green at night, as the rumor has it. Just that there are headstones there that glow. So we spent about, I don't know, an hour, I guess, driving around the cemetery, turning the headlights on and off, seeing if we catch a glimpse of anything glowing, and alas, we saw nothing. I know. <laughs> uh, we also read a story that when the trains go by at night, that's when the headstones would glow, but not a single train went by while we were there. I'm not even sure what that is, if it's a ghost train or if it's the vibration is supposed to... I don't know, enhance the vibration in some of the crystals or something like that. I'm not really know. sure what that theory would be. Or maybe it's the angle that the train's going past it and the light's hitting it or something. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. The, the light of the train charges up the headstones to make them glow. Could be. That could be it. <laughs> so the cemetery, it's a little over 10 acres and has about 1,400 people resting there. 
Uh, you would have thought you would have seen a glowing headstone out of 1,400 options. Yeah, but we didn't. I mean, in any cemetery, you might have that chance, I suppose. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, the most entertaining thing we did see was we watched a group of kids that got their truck stuck. Uh, they were trying to pull it out of the ditch. Mm-hmm. And we kept trying to figure out how they even got down into that area because they were right on the main road and there was no reason for them to even turn down where they did. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. Kids. Um, if the headstones really do glow at night, it would make sense because the cemetery is located by Kennecott Mining Company. Uh, if you guys don't know about the Kennecott Mining Company, I think it is the largest copper mining in the world at this point. Yeah, I think it holds title to the largest open pit mine. That's right. And yeah. it's on, I don't know if it's the number one, but it's one of the handful of man-made structures you can see from space station yeah. the moon something outer space anyway something like that it, this place is huge <laughs> mm-hmm. so think about it back then uh, if you had a family member pass away and you had to make a, a headstone for them you would source the stone from somewhere close you wouldn't drive 100 miles to get a stone or back then even take a horse and a buggy to go get a stone to cut them a headstone uh, there's tons of mar- minerals at the mine and we are no rock specialists, but we do know that certain rocks do glow. So maybe this is why they're glowing. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Could be you know, just <laughs> whatever crystals or minerals that are in them. Yeah. Or fallout. Yeah. I mean, they do a lot of processing. There's an ore refinery right out there near Magna Area. So it could be fallout from the sky that's given them a an element of luminescence. Oh, like a dusting or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was thinking, though, maybe we should go back. And take a black light with us, and maybe we could see him glow then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what are you doing tonight? Uh, nothing. All right. <laughs> so from there, we're going to head north of Salt Lake to the city of Ogden. In the Ogden City Cemetery, there is a headstone for a young gal by the name of Florence Louise Grange. Believe that uh, she prefers the name Louise. Yeah. So the cemetery is located at 1875 Monroe Boulevard in Ogden, Utah. The cemetery was established in 1851 and also has a separate section for pet burials. Kind of fun they do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Florence was born on November 24th, 1903, and was the second child to Dottie Susan Mumford and Ralph Manton Grange. Florence passed away on December 29th, 1918, at the age of 15. There's a lot of stories on how she passed away, one being that she choked on a piece of candy. Others say that she was waiting for her boyfriend outside of her house and was hit by a car. She had a boyfriend at 15 that was picking her up, huh? Yep. Uh, Neither of these stories are true because the Ogden Standard wrote that Florence Louise Grange, 15 years old, daughter of Ralph M. and Dottie Mumford Grange, died at 5 a.m. yesterday at her home, 2827 Grant Avenue of Heart Weakness. The descendant, right? Is that what we decided that was? Decedent. The decedent. That's right. The decedent has been a student of Ogden High School. Besides her parents, the following brothers and sisters survived. Ralph Jr., Leona, Thelma, and Dorothy. The body is at the Larkin Chapel awaiting for funeral arrangements. So that's her actual, um, what do they call those? They put them in the obituary. Mm -hmm. So another fun note, we were just at... The Spooks Boutique earlier today that you did that, uh, you took 
our hearse down for a car show. Uh-huh. And she mentioned that she had recently purchased, or not necessarily recently, but had previously purchased a hearse. And it was from Larkin, I believe, is who oh, she said she purchased it from. That's right. Because she asked you if yours was from the Larkin Mortuary. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's interesting. It's fun. <laughs> So in 1918, the world had an outbreak of the Spanish flu. You might call it a pandemic, much like where you have going on right now. <laughs> We're experiencing it right now. <laughs> yeah, it's the American flu at this point for us. <laughs> anyway, according to the CDC, it was estimated that about 500 million folks or a third of the world's population became infected with the virus. And the number of deaths is estimated at least 50 million worldwide. And about 675,000 occurring here in the U.S. It's a lot. It is a lot. So according to historian Leonard Arrington, Utah State Health Officer Dr. T.B. Beatty acted quickly and on October 10th issued a ban on all public gatherings, similar, (laughs) including church meetings, theater shows, and directed schools to close. So despite all this, the virus spread quickly throughout Utah. In Ogden, 2,626 influenza cases and 73 deaths had been reported by October 26th. So Ogden started to require anyone coming into the town to present them with a note from their doctor saying that they were healthy. They also required anyone with an active case of influenza to display a quarantine sign in their window. It is believed that everyone in the Grange family was affected by the Spanish flu, but unfortunately, Florence was at the age that had the highest mortality rate at the time. So, side note, when we were at the um, Harley Museum, remember they had that big picture up and they were all wearing their masks? Was yeah. that at the same time? Was yeah. it the same thing? Yep, the 1918 flu okay. epidemic. Okay, I just thought about that. So. Yeah, what she's talking about is the Harley Museum in Wisconsin. Uh, they had, when we walked in, it looked like it was a joke at first, but mm-hmm. an old-timey picture, and they all had a bunch of masks on. But as we got closer, they had a placard on there stating, 1918 flu epidemic. Yeah. So, yeah, that was pretty fun. It was way, way fun. I think he said they pulled that out of the archives just for, like, what was going on right now with mm-hmm. our pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was a huge poster on an entire wall. It was pretty awesome. Yeah. Yep. So anyways, back to what we're doing. We'll see if we have a picture of that and we'll put it up on the website. <laughs> yeah, that'd be fun. So anyway, so back to, to Flo. Um, oh. The news article does not say specifically that she passed away from the Spanish flu, but we believe that this may be the case. Not that she choked on candy or was ran over by a car. I mean, come on. If either of those stories were true, the news would have most definitely reported that, right? I would think so. <laughs> that seems like a pretty big deal to write about. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that you know the story of how she passed away and our thoughts on how she really passed away, why would you drive up to Ogden and visit her grave? I don't know. And what do you do once you find Flo's grave? Pray tell. <laughs> well, the legend has it that if you flash your car lights at her headstone three times, a green glowing light will appear. Mm-hmm. Some stories even say that if you have an empty seat in your car, that Flo will get inside. Um, no, thank you. No? No. Oh. We don't need to bring her home with us. <laughs> okay. So, what if she does the laundry? Uh, okay, never mind. All right. We can go to the Magna Cemetery and then go pick up Flo. Perfect. <laughs> so why does flashing your lights at her headstones bring her out? I don't know. Well, one theory is that since she was killed by a car, that she was coming after for the, she's coming after the person that ran her over. Aha. Uh-huh. 
Well, I've heard another is that since her dad was the first auto mechanic in Utah, that may be why flashing the car lights brings her out. She's attracted to the automobiles. Maybe. Our favorite theory or story we found on YouTube, and someone did a video of their visit to Flo's grave. We will link the video to our website, and it's definitely worth watching because we're not going to tell you about the entire video, just our version on why flashing the lights at her headstone brings her out. So you will need to watch to see how it ends. It's actually kind of a fun little video. Yeah, they did a pretty good job for a little YouTube video. Mm Mm-hmm. So the man in the video is telling his girlfriend that Flo had a boyfriend who was older than her and he owned a vehicle. Ooh. We didn't really catch how much older he could have been 17, but for a 15-year-old, that's enough to be a little sketched out about. Yep. (laughs) So at first, her old man didn't approve of this, but seeing how he had a car and Flo's dad was probably constantly doing work on it, how do you stop the two from seeing each other when he's one of his customers out there? Or maybe his only customer. (laughs) Could be, yeah. Uh, The story goes that every time he would come to the house to pick up Flo, he would pull up to the house and flash his lights three times to let her know that he was there. Well, since Flo's entire family got the flu, they had to put a sign in the window saying that they were on quarantine. Since the sign was up, Flo's boyfriend never came, and sadly, Flo passed away waiting for him to come pick her up. So when you flash your lights at her headstone, she thinks it's her boyfriend And maybe that's why she's so willing to get in your car. Yeah. So we went to visit Flo, but we went during the day because, again, we're not about to bring her home with us. (laughs) But if you want to go find Flo's grave, you can download the Find a Grave app. And when we were there, we updated the GPS location of her headstone. So it'll take you right to her. Mm -hmm. Pretty easy. We use Find a Grave for many, many things. Oh, yeah. So if you don't want to download the app, you can take the street in the cemetery called 7th Street. You'll head north down that street until you pass the road called Martin. And she's right next to the road on the west side. The plot number is also 2A-13-32-5W if you want to look it up and find it from the plot maps, I suppose. So Flo's parents are also resting peacefully next to her as well as, as her grandparents. Yeah, kind of nice. They're all by each other. Mm -hmm. So to wrap up the Haunted Headstone tour, we are going to head back to Salt Lake City. So the Salt Lake City Cemetery is the oldest active cemetery in Utah and the largest municipally owned cemetery in the country. The cemetery is about 120 acres, with the first burial being in 1848. Um, Some of the famous people buried there are Orrin Porter Rockwell, And we'll do a podcast on him if you don't already know who he is. He's got a really interesting story. Mm -hmm. So we've got Lester F. Wire, who was the inventor of the traffic light. Hiram Beebe, who was the self-proclaimed and contested Sundance kid. (laughs) Also, there resides Lily E. Gray and Jacob Mortz. Today we're going to tell you about the last two. These two headstones have some very interesting legends and stories. Lily E. Gray, also known by her headstone epitaph, the victim of the Beast 666. According to her birth certificate, which has nothing stating victim of the Beast or the 666, she was born on June 4, 1880, but on her headstone says she was born on June 6, 1881. I bet you her birth certificate is more accurate. Uh, Yeah. So she passed away on November 14th, 1958, making her 78, 79 when she passed away, depending on which document you want. 
So I just thought for those that don't know, the epitaph is like the little saying that they'll put under somebody's headstone. Some people have like poems. Hers is just like that one line underneath it. So if that helps make sense. That's it. Uh, there are many stories about Lily's headstone and who she was. When we were growing up, we were told the devil killed her. We read a theory that she was involved with Aleister Crawley's occult in Utah. Uh, we're not going to go get involved with Aleister Crawley. It's a deep, dark rabbit hole. We don't need to go down. Not for this episode. No. <laughs> but Aleister Crawley would refer to himself as the Beast or 666. Alistair Crawley passed away in 1947, and Lily did not move to Utah until 1950. So that theory is a little difficult to believe because his occult probably wasn't going anymore at that time once yeah. she finally made it to Utah. Yeah, I don't know how much of it survived for how long after his death, for sure. Yeah. Interesting. Um, another story that we saw was that she was the first witch in Utah. Mm-hmm. But she also didn't come to Utah until 1950, so very unlikely that if she was a witch, she was the first one. <laughs> yeah, I bet you there was at least one more before her. Possibly. <laughs> yeah. So we also read some stories of her being murdered by Satanists during a ritual. I don't know about that one. No. <laughs> so another story says that she was killed in a car accident while driving on the Devil's Highway, which was Route 666 in Utah. I wasn't sure about all this, if that's a real thing, but there is a stretch of highway that goes from Albuquerque, New Mexico, up into Monticello, Utah, which is down near the Four Corners area. Mm -hmm. So that road is supposedly the sixth branch off of Route 66, making it the 666. Yeah. Now it's generally known as Highway 491, but there was still signs in New Mexico. Is that what we found? Yeah. That still say Highway 666? Yeah, they're trying to remove them all. A lot of people are petitioning that they shouldn't have ever deemed the highway the 666. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see. We'll probably uh, take a drive on this road at some point in time. It's supposed to be pretty haunted, so yeah. look forward to that for a future episode as well. Yep. So anyway, who knows if any of that's a true thing, but the Salt Lake Tribune obituary states... Miss Lily Edith Gray, 7812... 16 Pacific Avenue, 440 South, dies Friday, 1110 a.m. in a Salt Lake Hospital of Natural Causes. Born June 4, 1880, Canada, Salt Lake resident since 1950, married to Elmer Lewis Gray, July 10, 1952, Elko, Nevada, survivor's husband, several nieces and nephews. I think it's kind of funny that they put their addresses in the obituaries back then. Yeah, you had to know where to send flowers, I suppose. Oh, maybe. Yeah, I didn't think of that. I don't know. Uh, we think if she did die in a car accident, they would have reported that, not that she died of natural causes in a hospital. The best explanation people have been able to find so far as to why her epitaph says victim of the beast, 666, has to do with her husband, Elmer. And we'll tell you all about him in a bit, but right meow, let's talk about Lily. Did you just say right meow? I did. <laughs> meow? <laughs> all right. Well, like we mentioned earlier, Lily was born on June 4th, 1880. Lily, sometimes she was spelled with one L for L-I-L-Y, other times was L-I-L-L-Y. Mm -hmm. 
So if you are going to look for information on her, you may need to see results for both versions of her spelling. So Lily was a Canadian with her hometown being Manvers, Ontario. Her parents were Wilmer Gray and Frances McQuaid. So she was born a Gray and passed away a Gray. Both Grays spelled with an A. Very interesting. Yeah. So Lily, with one L or two, had a twin sister named Ethel, Sarah Gray, and the two girls were number six and seven out of eight children. That's a lot. Yes. So according to records, her family came to the U.S. of A. in 1880 and were living in Benzie, Michigan. I believe my family line came into the States in the 1880s as well. Oh, wow. So did I just understand this all correctly, that they had twin children and then the same year moved to the U.S.? Yeah, well, they had five kids already to help take care of the twins, so I think it's fine. Wow. They probably didn't even know the kids were there. <laughs> uh, Lily's first husband was Richard C. Walsh. The two were married while living in Chicago, Illinois, on October 8th, 1918. He was 67 when they got married, and she was 38. Yeah, it's normal. Yeah. Um, it's a 29-year difference if you're trying to do the math in your head. Um, her marriage to him didn't last long because he passed away on December 1925, meaning they were married for seven years. Mm -hmm. I guess maybe he got the seven-year itch. Perhaps. <laughs> Isn't that what that movie's about? Per I don't know. <laughs> Perhaps. So from there, Lily went on to marry Mr. Frank Zimmerman. I love his last name. Yeah. So that was November of 1926. This time, she got smart and married someone closer in age. He was 50, and she was 46. So the two were married for 17 years until Frank passed in August of 1943. After his passing, Lily stayed in Chicago for another seven years before moving to Utah in 1950. And this is where she finds Mr. Elmer Gray. Mm -hmm. A little history on Elmer. He arrived in Utah sometime in 1937. After he was released from prison in the Colorado State Penitentiary, while he was in Colorado, he served two years for larceny. And we know he was in Utah in 1937 because he was arrested for breaking into the Cam Camus Confectionery Building. The candy store. <laughs> he broke into the candy store and got caught. <laughs> Can you imagine? How old is he at this time? Finding a grown man in your candy store. Literally with his hand in the cookie jar. I can't even begin like as the owner walking in on him like, whoa. Yeah. What are you like 50 eating my candy? Yeah. That's a, a sweet tooth to die for. Holy yeah. shit. So he gets arrested and he gets caught in this candy store and the store, the store owner is the one that caught him. And this all took place. Um, Sorry, so on August 16th, because of this, he was charged with second-degree burglary and was sentenced to an indeterminate term in the Utah State Prison. Uh, oddly enough, when he was arrested, he put the name Woodrow Lamb, I don't know where he got that from, um, on his paperwork, and this is when we start to see signs of Elmer's mental illness. It's a creative first name. Woodrow Lamb. Woodrow, Yeah. <laughs> Well, in Elmer's first application for parole, because again, it was an indeterminate sentence, so you're, the only chance of getting out is to start asking if they'll let you go. That's so crazy. Ask for permission to go. 
<laughs> so his first application for parole on September 27th, 1937, he stated he did not know what offense he committed and was not arrested, nor did he ever appear in court. One of the questions on the forums asks when he was sentenced to the Utah State Prison, and he wrote, never sentenced. He then went on to say that he was vacationing in Salmon, Idaho, before heading back to work in Iowa. He was being held hostage by the Utah authorities and hadn't been able to talk to a lawyer. Elmer then went on to say that the sheriff told him he was taking him to Salt Lake to talk to a lawyer, but delivered him to the state pen instead. Funny little side note, when he was filling out the paperwork, he spelled butt, B-U-T-T. A butt. <laughs> What a trickster. <laughs> I'm so childish. I thought that was funny. <laughs> uh, he filed for parole again on September 23rd, 1938. And this time he had a new story. He stated that he was camping near the Heber River with his wife, Florence Pitvin. Potvin. Potvin. Yeah, Potvin. Um, on August 6th, 1937. He then goes on to say that they were robbed of $1,600 and he was shot twice. In 1938, he's got $1,600 cash on him. I didn't look up to see what that kind of conversion would have been, but that's oh, a yeah. pile of money. Yeah. And he was just shot twice. Right. And what else? Uh, they murdered his wife. Oh. So he had quite the adventure up there by the river. Yeah, that's a shitty picnic. Then he goes on to tell them that the men stole his vehicle. Oh, what would it, what? <laughs> What a day. <laughs> right? And his baggage. <laughs> so he's screwed. Uh, he even put the vehicle on the form and he said it was a 1929 Auburn sports sedan. I don't even know what that is. Well, it's a 1929 Auburn sports sedan. Oh, okay. You know. <laughs> uh, interesting enough, though, he still sticks to the story that he was kidnapped by the state of Utah and held without any trial. We did notice on this form that there were three... Different forms of handwriting on on it being uh, written out. One of them was uh, Elmer or Woodrow's, whichever one you want to call them at that time. And it was in cursive. The other is being in print. And the third is being of maybe an office employee because they filled in the parts he left blank. And they had very beautifully written cursive. And so it was, it was almost like a woman did it if you compare all the handwriting together. Clearly not his. Yeah, definitely not. Uh, by 1941, Elmer tells his real name, but still sticks to the story that he does not know why he was in prison. Not the fact that he was caught robbing a liquor or a candy store. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the questions on the forum asks when he was sentenced to the Utah State Prison, and he put never. Never. Um, I was brought here to die by the men who kidnapped me. <laughs> Mm -hmm. This dude's killing me. I can't even understand where he's coming up with these stories. Uh, he then writes all over the entire form saying, Nebecker? Nebecker? Nebecker. And Bob Harris have held me captive for three years and six months without allowing me to see, call, or write to anyone. And aided and abetted the men who kidnapped and robbed us and murdered my wife and would not even let me see the board, a lawyer, or write. I want a personal appearance before board. If Bob Harris and his lawless, lawless authorities are not guilty, why do they keep me here for? I don't even know. <laughs> also, 
sorry if our dog is super loud. She had to go get eye surgery today, so she's got a cone of shame on, and she's super loopy, so. Yeah, she's still a little intoxicated from the surgery, <laughs> and she hates the radar dish. Yeah. Can you blame her, though? <laughs> no. So she's moaning a lot and flopping around right now. She's doing the what was me game today. <laughs> yeah, she's now on my foot. Take pity on me. All right, so in 1945, January 1st, he filed for parole. This time he typed out the form, or someone did it for him, but he put his name as Woodrow Lamb again and even signed it Woodrow Lamb. No real crazy story printed out on this one. His final parole was a year later in 1946, and he filled out the form correctly, again this time without telling any elaborate stories. We did notice that on all the other forms, he listed either his parents' names or that their name was the same as his. He also listed their address, but on this form, he listed his parents as both deceased. Yeah, I wonder if they really had passed away, if he was making that up. And Yeah, who knows? Yeah. And then if he if they really had passed away, that means he was talking to somebody. Somebody would have had to tell him, you know, hey, mom and dad passed away. So sure. it's, it's interesting that that changed all of a sudden. Um, on July 11th, 1948, after serving 10 years and six months in jail, he was released. You can get on the Utah.gov website and view all of his parole forms. The handwritten ones are our favorite because he didn't fill the forms out correctly and just writes random shit all over the paper. I think this gives you a pretty good idea of where Elmer's head was at once he was released from jail. Yeah, little uh, loony. Mm-hmm. So back to Lily. On July 11th, 1952, Mr. Elmer Gray and Lily E. Zimmerman got married at the county courthouse in Elko, Nevada. When they got married, Elmer was 71 and Lily was 72, and the two rented a little house in Salt Lake. So from the time Lily and Elmer were married until she passed away at 11.10 p.m. on November 14, 1958, Elmer stayed out of trouble the whole time with the law. Lily's death certificate listed her death as pulmonary embolism and renal insufficiency, not being killed by the beast. Oh, <laughs> surprise with elmer being her only living relative close enough to take care of the burial he picked her headstone which means he put the words victim of the beast 666 on her headstone mm -hmm. so elmer passed away at twelve thirty p.m october 31st 1964 yes that is correct the man that had killed by the beast, inscribed on his wife's headstone, passed away on Halloween. That's not a joke. So on his death certificate, it lists Parkinson's disease and kidney stones as other significant conditions to death, but not related to the terminal disease. What we have been able to find out about Parkinson's is the average time from the onset of symptoms to death is about 16 years. Again, that's an average. So we also found that between 20 to 40% of folks with Parkinson's report the experience of hallucinations and that from the age 41 to 60 is the common age to get Parkinson's. Yep. So follow us down the road for a bit. Elmer went to jail when he was 56 mm -hmm. and follow. right off the bat, he says his name is Woodward. Mm -hmm. He then starts saying that he does not know why he's in jail and that he was being held hostage. Mm-hmm. 
He then continues on with his story for a few more times before he finally tells the truth and fills the forms out like they should be filled out. Still following. Also, like I mentioned before, you can see two different sets of handwriting from him. I don't know about you guys, but I have seen people with Parkinson's try to write and they're very slow. And when they write the letters out, not sign them, it's like they're really trying to write the letters out and there's a little shake to it. Mm -hmm. So if he had Parkinson's when he went into jail, that means by the time Lily passed away, he had been living with it for roughly 21 years. People that have hallucinations truly believe they are real, and Elmer may have believed that he had been kidnapped and that he was being held hostage. Mm -hmm. Thus may have made him start to hate the government and believe that they were out to get him. I think they might have been anyway. Yeah, you never know. Mm -hmm. Then his wife passes away, and he doesn't get to ride to the hospital with her. Mm -hmm. Now his brain's turning again, and he's thinking, Man, the government's really after me. My wife died alone in the hospital because they wouldn't let me ride an ambulance with her. I'm going to show them. He runs on down to the mortuary and puts Victim of the Beast 666 on her headstone, and he is referring to the beast as the government. The government. <laughs> also, just in case you guys couldn't uh, pick that up, uh, we were the ones that came up with what he said. <laughs> yeah, that was not a direct quote. <laughs> no. <laughs> Anywhere implied that it was actually him. <laughs> so the final headstone we're going to tell you about in the Salt Lake City Cemetery is Jacob Moritz, also known as Emo's Grave. His mausoleum is located in the Jewish section of the Salt Lake City Cemetery. It is a beautiful mausoleum with a solid steel door, the name Moritz above it, and a metal wreath below the window with an M right in the middle. Where Emo came from, we have no idea. As a kid in junior high, I remember my friends telling me about his grave, and legend was he was the first devil worshiper in Utah. A small back history for those of you that do not know, Utah was settled by Mormons, so the idea of the first devil worshiper in Utah, it was a pretty big deal. And my friends would then go on to tell me that you had to walk around the grave three times chanting, emo, 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 and then you would knock on the door. If it worked, then you would see the devil himself. Oh, terrifying. <laughs> there is no way in hell my mom would let me go to the gravesite of this man. I mean, my poor mother thinks the movie The Ghost of Mr. Chicken is scary. That sounds scary. <laughs> it's got Don Knotts in it. It's not scary. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, just like the game Telephone, the story of Emo's grave has changed about a million times throughout the years. Mm -hmm. One story says you have to light a candle, walk around the grave chanting emo, emo, emo. Then you will look in the window of the crypt and you would see emo's eyes glowing red. Another one says you've got to walk around it backwards chanting his name three times. And then you'll see the ghost of emo again with red eyes. <laughs> so much variation here. Yes. Another story again re read the number of times you walk around the top of the cement crib surrounding the mausoleum without falling is how many years you have left to live. Spooky. Yeah, I wouldn't want to do that one. Yeah. So with all these different directions, it's hard to know which one is going to actually work. Why are there so many options on the ritual? I, I mean, don't know. If this whole thing is done to summon up the devil or Emo himself, don't you think they would have clear directions on how to do it? Yeah, the devil would have 
described it to a tree or something at least. <laughs> and I was also informed that I was pronouncing his name incorrectly. I was calling it Emu. <laughs> so Emu, Emu, Emu. That wouldn't work either. <laughs> you would summon a giant bird running around. I wouldn't even have to use my peacock call. They would just come. <laughs> what does your peacock call sound like? We'll do that later. <laughs> I kind I think I forgot what it sounds like. Yeah, I don't think that's going to attract an emu, though. I just did that. You just did that. <laughs> wow, I'm impressed. I hope everybody else is, too. <laughs> How could they not be? All right, well, who is Mr. Jacob Moritz? Not a devil worshiper, we can tell you that. Mm -mm -mm. Jacob was born in Ingenheim, Germany, on February 22, 1849. While in Germany, he attended a business school, and then his family came to the U.S. in 1865. He was about 17 then. Jacob quickly got a job working at F.M. Schaefer Brewing Company in New York City before moving on to work at... Anheuser-Busch, St. Louis, Missouri. <laughs> Jacob only worked there for a short time before he decided to do what most people did back then, and that was to move west to try his hand at mining. Go west, my son. <laughs> Jacob stopped in Helena, Montana, and tried mining there for a bit before he finally made his way to Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, while in Utah, he decided that he would make a better living at brewing, and opened the Montana Brewery on Warm Springs Road in North Salt Lake. Mm -hmm. While working out of this location, Jacob started building the Salt Lake Brewing Company, and by 1891, he had the largest brewery outside of Wisconsin. His brewery was located at, what do you say, 1,000 East? At 10th East. 10th East. 10th East and 500 South, which part of his building still remains and is now the Anniversary Inn. Isn't the anniversary in Haunted as well? Yeah. Spooky. Yep, it is. It's a fun place, though, for you, for, you know, the people that don't know, like, all of their rooms are different themed rooms. Oh, the heart-shaped bathtub or hot tubs and whatnot? Yeah, and they've got, like, a bed that's, like, a, like, you have to take steps to get up into it because it's, like, the jungle room and mm. it's kind of cool. You can get online and see pictures of all of the different rooms that they have available to rent. Very romantic. Yeah, so when the city decided to put the new tracks line in, that's still there today. Um, they did this in 2001. They actually uncovered tunnels that Jacob would use to go to the many buildings that he owned at the brewery. This location was huge. There's pictures online of what it used to look like. And there's buildings all over where he, you know, the brewery was at. And nobody wants to walk in the snow. Yeah, I don't blame him. <laughs> so he also owned a total of 36 saloons in Utah, and they all sold his beer exclusively, which were called the American Beauty, and at the time he had one called Budweiser. Back then, Budweiser was considered a type of beer, but Anheuser-Busch from St. Louis, Missouri, <laughs> argued that they owned the rights to the name, and Jacob lost them in a court battle. So prior to Prohibition, Jacob was producing about 100,000 barrels of beer a year, which is around 6,000 bottles a day. That's crazy. That's a lot of beer. So he even shipped his beer to Wyoming, Colorado, Nevada, Idaho, Montana, California, pretty much everywhere around yeah. there. So 1906, when Prohibition finally made its way to Utah, Jacob was producing 50,000 barrels a year, 
half, obviously, the production that mm-hmm. he was capable of doing. So we also found a news article in the Salt Lake Tribune that said he had a state-of-the-art brewery with electric equipment. High tech. Yeah. He obviously spared no expense in making his beer. Uh, he was pretty smart with uh, his advertisement on his beer. And on October 13th, 1907, he ran an ad in the Salt Lake Tribune with a headline saying that, quote, beer contains less alcohol than apple cider. At that time, they would ferment apple cider. So it is very likely that he is correct in that statement. Mm-hmm. Which would apple cider have been considered an alcohol back then during Prohibition? Well, if you're fermenting it, it's the same thing as your hard cider that you're buying now. Huh. Okay. So like the Red's apple ciders and all that kind of stuff. Okay. We've got a few of them at some of the shows around here, the hard ciders. Yeah. Okay. And I do think that typically they're a little stronger than your average beer. Yeah. Around here in Utah anyway. Well, some of them you have to go to the liquor store and buy. You can't buy at the gas station Mm -hmm. because they are higher alcohol content. Mm -hmm. Utah liquor lies, folks. (laughs) So in 1885, Jacob was serving on the grand jury in Salt Lake. There, the prosecutor was trying to indict two men whose prison terms for unlawful cohabitation were about to end. At that time, a person could be prosecuted multiple times for the same offense, with each indictment given a different date. Therefore, a polygamist could be in jail eh, just about forever. That's crazy. Yeah. So Jacob refused to indict the men, again, anyway. And the judge threw him out of the courtroom. Wasn't having it. (laughs) So by doing this, Jacob earned uh, quite a bit of respect and favor around with the Mormon community, though he was not Mormon. He was Jewish and owned a brewery, which was not practiced by the... uh, It was frowned upon. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, the church could do that kind of stuff, but not the people of the church. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In 1889, Jacob married... mm, I'm sorry. I'm going to say her name wrong, and I apologize. La... Lahali? Lahali? Lahila, I think. Lahila. This is a Hawaiian name, right? Yeah. Lahila Lewison. Lahila Lewison. And the two of them remained very active in that church as well as the community. Lahaya actually means Rachel in Hawaii. And she was the first Jewish woman born in Hawaii. Jacob actually met her while in Hawaii, and that's where the two of them got married. How romantic. I know. And then he drug her from a tropical island back to Utah. Where she had to live in the desert and snow. And snow. (laughs) And make beer. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Well, old Jacob's health started to decline in late 1909. So the two of them decided some rest would do him him well. They packed up their bags and headed for Germany. Because why not? Well, that's where he's from. Makes sense. Yeah. So while in Germany, on June 9th, 1910, at the age of 61, Jacob passed away from stomach and lung cancer. That would probably be why he wasn't feeling so hot. Yeah. His wife had him cremated so that she could bring him back home to Utah. She built the mausoleum and had his remains placed in there. Again, it was behind the window in the mausoleum. So at the time of his passing, his worth was over 327 grand. So in today's money, that's about $8.9 million. I'd still be okay with 327000 Yeah, <laughs> either way it'd be all right. <laughs> So Jacob and Lahela never had kids, so she got all the money. After his passing, she remarried and moved to California. So Jacob did have a partner in this business, but his company is sadly no longer around, and we didn't find what exactly happened to it there. 
Yeah, I mean, with the brewery being the largest in the West, you would have thought that once Prohibition, you know, ended, that they would have started manufacturing the beer again and continued that on, but you don't know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Jacob's Mausoleum is beautiful for Utah, but it is nowhere near the ones we've seen back East. We've seen some that are like the size of a castle, <laughs> and mm-hmm. bigger than my house, but for Utah, Mausoleums, it's very beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, you used to be able to look into the window, like the legend would say, and you could see the actual urn in there holding his remains. But over time, vandals have destroyed it. Uh, I read something that they were throwing rocks through the window and, and breaking his urn. Mm-hmm. Kind of sad. The, Trying to resurrect an emu. <laughs> yeah. Damn vandals. Uh, the cemetery has since gone in and removed his remains. And there's a lot of stories about where his remains went as well. Some say that they got sent to California with his wife. Some say that he's buried in another section in the cemetery that's undisclosed. But either way, he's not in the mausoleum anymore. And then they did cover up the window so you can't even look inside of the the mausoleum to see anything in there or email looking back at you, unfortunately. Yeah, the detectives still played over it now. Mm-hmm. So we've yet to find anything explaining where the legend of emo came from, or emu, <laughs> and when it started. We have no idea. Um, from when I was a kid, and I've been 29 for a few years now, so <laughs> there was different, definitely some different stories. I recall something from when I was younger that said it was E-M-O-H, everything we're finding research-wise says E-M-O for mm-hmm. uh, spelling of emo, but E-M-O-H, and that was... I don't know why it was relevant, but it was home spelled backwards. The closest thing we've really been able to find is that Jacob was the first to be cremated in Utah, and maybe that's why folks think that he was the devil, but we don't have any proof of that, and he wasn't actually cremated in Utah. He was cremated in Germany and brought back to Utah. Right. So, so that don't make no sense, Nita. Defuncts that one a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> we would love to know why they chose Jacob's grave to be the source of the story, And also, if any of you have tried to call upon him or know of a different way to summon him, please let us know. I mean, Halloween's around the corner, and we wouldn't mind trying out some different ideas. Yeah. You know, we might uh, run up there tonight and see what we can (laughs) conjure up, as it were. Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Big birds or something. Something's going (laughs) to happen. It has to, right? (laughs) Well, folks, there you have it. There's a few of our local hauntings. Um, our next episode in a couple of weeks, just before Halloween, we're going to take you to a haunted hotel in Nevada. So be sure to keep following along. Yes, that one's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, it's a fun place. So do you have any dad jokes for us? I do. I have a good one. Pray tell. <laughs> where does his dad, where does a dad keep his dad jokes? Mm, I don't know. In his database. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to see what we're up to, you can follow us on Instagram. At Rebel at Large. You can find links and pictures for this episode on our website. Rebelatlarge.com. 
and we're gonna make it easy there you can find links to the tweeter and any of the other social things or you can send us an email to share your stories yes um so safe travels we'll see y'all down the road (laughs) 